Am I on? Yes. Thank you so much, David and Christine. Uh, just think for a moment, would you, about someone who you love and care about deeply. And you need to have a big chat with them about something, a serious conversation. Maybe you've had to do this recently. And to be honest, you're a little bit nervous. Could be an older person, someone you respect. You have to say something that's hard. Could be a friend, someone you have deep affection for. You worry about the impact of what you're going to say. Could be a family member, someone you have had lifelong blood ties with and, and you're going to stay attached to them, depending, no matter what comes of the conversation. And you know you've got to have this significant conversation and you're really not sure how to go about it. What if I don't say it right? What if, in spite of my best intentions, I come across wrong? Sometimes I just can't explain myself well. My words fail me. You fear your own weakness, your own inadequacy. You think you're going to open your mouth and put your foot in it. Now, we have all had such conversations. And this is how a lot of us Christians feel about sharing the gospel, the good news. We know we've got the best news in the world to share. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We know that we're more wicked and sinful than we ever realized, but we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we dare to dream. We know that God saves sinners. And we care deeply about other people, people we know and love. And we, 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 we know that at some point we want to share this, this message. And we know it's a big conversation. And to be honest, we're nervous. And maybe we've tried in the past and it went wrong. We've had some negative experiences. If you're a Christian here today, and not all of us are, some are just looking into the faith. If you're a Christian, think of a person you care about deeply who doesn't know the Lord. Have you given up hope? The man that we read about today was an important religious leader from an Arabian tribe. In his culture, he was a senior respected person. His name is Jethro. And verse 1 puts it right front and center. And if you want to open your Bible again to page 75, it tells us about Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses. And when it says priest of Midian, this is quite a statement. He may well have been a high priest in a culture that valued priests very highly. He is a significant religious leader. And that means not just that he's like a pastor or a priest in a church, but also he has a big role in the community. People look to Jethro. He is a priest of Midian. And Midian means that he's not part of the Israelite people. He's not one of the Hebrews ethnically. He's not a descendant of Abraham. He can't trace his family line back through the, uh, the, the sons of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and the 12 tribes. He's not part of any of that. He's from a different ethnic group. He's an Arab. But he is Moses' father-in-law. And this man comes and he hears about the Lord. Now just think about it. Jethro has a lot to lose, doesn't he, if he follows the Lord. He has a lot to lose. And he's a mature person. He's not a young person just making up 
his mind about the world. He's clear in his convictions, and probably change will be difficult to accept. What we see today in this passage is the first account of a conversion to follow the Lord after the Israelites come out of Egypt. The first account of a conversion. What we get here is detailed, intimate uh, information about private conversations between Moses and his father-in-law, and only Moses could have written this. And we get to be a fly on the wall or a fly on the tent, listening in as these two men speak. And it's between family members, a son-in-law and his wife's father. And in that culture, this is a relationship of great respect and honor. Now, I've got really great in-laws And I'm not just saying that because this is going out on YouTube. I really do have great in-laws, Pete and Joan Coles, who I first met in the late 1990s and have become a second father and mother to me. When I was working in uh, headhunting up in the West End of London many years ago, Pete phoned up for some reason. He phoned my office phone. And I was sharing an office with a, a woman about my age who was a British Indian, a very highly educated woman, Uh, brought up in Britain but with an Indian cultural background. And I picked up the phone and he said it was Pete. And I said to my father-in-law, hello, mate. And we proceeded to chat about something or other. And when I put the phone down, my colleague Jyoti looked at me with a certain amount of horror and said, did you just call your father-in-law mate? I said, yeah, what's the problem? And she proceeded to tell me about the relationship with in-laws in her culture, which was that such respect was due that she would call them Mama G and Papa G, and if she saw her father-in-law, it would not be be out of of step to bow on the floor and touch his, his feet with her forehead as a gesture of respect. Now, this culture of the Bible is much closer to that than modern Western culture, which many of us here are from. Great respect, great honor. So when we come to Jethro, we're talking about a relationship of great honor, a father-in-law who's a respected community leader in his own right. And so we might think, if we're honest, someone like that is never going to change his mind. But who are we to give up hope? We have no right. Who are we to decide for someone else? Oh, that person could never become a believer. Really? What about you? You're not exactly promising material. No one, you see, is beyond reach of the Lord our God. His heart is for all peoples from all nations. And this story gives us two vital insights about how believers should relate to non-believers. Very simple things. Simple, but I believe profound and transforming. And Christians, by the way, I'm not going to guilt you today into going out and sharing the gospel. Okay? We're not going to try and guilt anyone. That never works. There are two insights of this. Moses shared and Moses listened. Moses shared. Moses listened. First thing we notice is that Moses shared He shared about what had happened, and Jethro heard it all and acknowledged it. And humanly speaking, what he shares is absolutely amazing, isn't it? See, the people were uh, in Egypt. They'd lived there for some 400 years. They're all descendants of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob and they've lived there and they've grown in Egypt and they've come under the rule of some kings. The kings were called Pharaoh. And first of all, the relationship was good, but over time it became oppressive until in the end it was a brutal abuse of an ethnic group and it included um, genocide, killing of baby boys. And so we've followed this story for the first half of the book of how God heard and had concern for his people and remembered his ancient promises, his covenant. And God said, I will deliver you. And he did. He gave Pharaoh and the Egyptians many, many opportunities to take a fork in the road and stop their path. But they continued to oppress these Israelites who cried out. Uh, they, They oppressed them and God came to their rescue and delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And brought them out. And there were plagues on Egypt that intensified until in the end, the biggest tragedy of all was the death of the firstborn in every household in that nation. As God held them corporately and collectively accountable for what they had done to his firstborn, Israel. And then God freed them. And under Moses, they'd been led out and plundered the Egyptians and come out with gold and silver and beautiful cloth. And then they traveled through the, the desert and we thought about how the Egyptians still hardened their hearts and went after them with a fierce and terrifying army of chariots. But again, God came down for them, was there for them, rescued them, brought them through the waters of the sea on dry land as a new creation and new people formed to fill the earth with his image. And the waters came back and buried Pharaoh and his violent army in the chaos. And God was bringing them through. And we thought about some of their journey in the desert and how they complained. And how God again rebuked them but provided for them manna. Bread that meant, what's that? This special bread that he fed them with and quail and water even from a rock. And we thought about this journey. And at the end of chapter 17, there was a fierce battle with a tribe called the Amalekites. End of chapter 17 records this savage attack. And... This group who wanted to destroy Israel. We're talking about a cruel people group who wanted to kill them, man, woman, and child. Now, we haven't preached a sermon on the Amalekites because last week was a baptismal service. And we just thought, given the occasion, a sermon on the Amalekites might not have fitted. So we had to change our series. But I want to reference this tribe because scholars noticed that the meeting with Jethro is a complete parallel and counterpoint to the encounter with Amalek. Amalek came in battle. Jethro comes in peace. Moses chooses men for war in chapter 17. Chapter 18, Moses chooses men for justice. In chapter 17, Moses sat on a stone and prayed and held his hands up. In chapter 18, he sits on a judge's chair and gives out justice. In chapter 17, Moses' hands were heavy. And in chapter 18, his Burden is heavy as he administers justice. We go from a fierce arm struggle to a peaceful, harmonious understanding. These two things have been put side by side. Two different people's reaction to the Israelites and their rescue. What does that tell you? In every generation, there are going to be people who react to the Lord's rule in very different ways. There are going to be some people who actually hate the idea of God being in charge. And in some way or other, they will let you feel it. In my previous church, we supported a mission partner in North India. He went from village to village on a push bike, knocking on doors and saying, have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? In some villages, people said, 
Haven't heard of him. He must live in the next village. Never heard of the name of Jesus. A church got started. The work began among children and young people, actually. A, mum, a, a mother, a woman, came to the church just to find out. She wasn't a Christian. When she got home, her family tried to set fire to her. Some people will react to the gospel in that kind of way. But, but now we have Jethro. And other people will hear the gospel, hear about the Lord's rule, and they react in a completely different way to the Lord's rule. And just notice how much real estate this episode occupies. Amalek got just nine verses. Jethro gets three times as much. Why on earth? You think about all that's happened in the book of Exodus and how the the writer is, is quite economical with language. And here we are, chapter 18, we get an entire chapter just about this conversation, two conversations with this man, Jethro. A great London preacher called Dick Lucas used to say, Uh, whenever you see something in the Bible that seems odd to you, pay attention. It seems odd that there's so much here. And what's happening in this long conversation is showing believers how to relate to people outside the faith. Moses shared. But this is no simple download. Notice verses 2 to 4. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, her father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. We don't know when that was. It might have been before he even went to Egypt. It might have been some time after. But we know that he sent her away, and father-in-law's been looking after the family. And look at the sons' names. There's no wasted details in the Bible. The two boys' names tell the whole story. The first one is called Gershom, which means foreigner there. I was a stranger there. It's the experience of Israel, the experience of God's people, of being a foreigner in a strange land. But the second boy's name tells the rest of the story. His name is Eliezer, which means my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. See, the two boys' names tell the story. Moses' family itself bears an eloquent testimony to his faith. He hasn't hidden what he believes. It's there in the life of the family. And in verse 7, when he meets Jethro, Moses shows him incredible respect and courtesy. Look at verse 7. He went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. This greeting honors the father-in-law in full public view. He treats Jethro with all the respect that is due in his culture. Do we treat non-believing people and family members with all the respect that is due in our culture? Even those who we think are doing wrong things. And then in verse 8, Moses shares the story. He tells his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And notice what else he tells him. He tells him about all the hardships they've met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. This word hardship is a rare word in the Bible. It means the weariness of the hardships. You see, following the Lord is not a walk in the park smelling the daisies. Following the Lord may lead you through real hardship, ups and downs of life. Heard a bit about that today from Basil. 
If we're going to share what the Lord has done for us, we need to share, tell the truth. It's not a victorious story about everything's great now, my life is always full of joy. Come on, no one's fooled by that. Tell about all the hardships too. Tell it true. Tell it in your own voice, in your own words, an honest account. The Lord has done so much for me and I'm really struggling with this. Jethro hears it. He hears it all and in verse 9, he says he is delighted to hear it. This is not everyone's reaction, is it? But some will be delighted. And so he calls a feast. And in verse 12, Jethro brings a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came, that's Moses' brother, with all the elders of the people. And they ate a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. In other words, Moses and Jethro have an ongoing, close relationship of fellowship and trust and warmth. This is not a hit-and-run approach to evangelism. This is not, I've got to quickly download my story or my five points about Christianity and run. This is somebody who's in a relationship. They're there for them, whether or not that person accepts. Moses shared what the Lord has done for me. And wonderfully, Jethro believed Verses 10 to 11 are actually what the whole book has been driving at. Have a look at this. Praise be, says Jethro, praise be to the Lord, that's Yahweh, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, this is so important, watch this. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. This is what the whole book has been driving towards. Why did God say to Pharaoh, I'm going to demonstrate my power to you? Why didn't he just blast him and lead them out? It was so that everyone would know who the Lord is. So that we know the Lord by personal experience. And now the first person who actually comes up and says it is a pagan priest. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. Moses is shared and the pagan man gets it. And he sacrifices to the Lord. A whole burnt offering means that every part of that animal is consumed. Nobody else gets some. Now this isn't just because someone leaves their Sunday lunch on for too long. The point of a burnt offering is that it's all for God. Lord, you take that bull, calf, goat, whatever it is. It's all yours. And then there are other sacrifices. Notice that it says a burnt offering and sacrifices. And the other sacrifices are so that we can have a feast. Going to the temple in the Old Testament was like going to a barbecue restaurant. It was full of joy because people gave their sacrifice and some of the meat went to the priest to feed him and some went to the family. And these were people who didn't eat meat very often. It's a feast and they rejoice. Jethro wants to share with them the two sacrifices. Now, what Moses has done is told all that the Lord has done for me. And I think you can do that too. You think, oh no, I'm too shy. Um, I don't think I'm very bright. I get all tongue-tied and embarrassed. I can't speak. I'm too nervous. I know you are. But you can still tell what the Lord has done for you in your own words. We heard about some of this last week. John referenced it earlier. We had this wonderful baptism service. 14 young adults shared their story and they've come through different hardships 
Some shared of how struggles with anxiety made them turn to God in a fresh and deeper way. Lord, I'm anxious I have to trust you because I've got no one else like you. One shared how he'd been brought up in a Christian family, gone away from it because of bad experiences with church, bad experiences with Christians. And I'm afraid that happens too. We're very imperfect. We will let you down. But after some time in the wilderness, he realized Jesus met me there and the world was actually worse and he came back. Others shared about the need to be in control of life and try and plan everything and how that can can try to drive you around the bend. And one man realized, I can trust the Lord with my life and relax. He's got it. Others doubted and realized there's a point where I have to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And they reached out and found him. It's your own words. It's your own story. It's unique. And all you have to do is tell it. And if you're lisping and fumbling and it's embarrassed, that's you. And probably some people will hear it better from you than they will from a highly polished professional speaker. Because you just sound so authentic. Moses shared. And brother, sister, you can share too. After all that they've been through, the person who believes and offers sacrifice is Jethro. Statistically, this is an unlikely conversion, isn't it? He's much further along than most of the Israelites. And that shows us that nothing, nobody is impossible for God. Do we think that any heart is too hard? Your husband, your wife, your son or daughter, your family member, your friend, your colleague, your neighbor. Do we think that there is any heart that's too hard? Is there someone who you have given up praying for? Someone that the Lord might be laying on your heart right now? What is he telling you? Don't give up hope. If God can change Jethro, he can change anyone. And that's the story of the entire Bible. So friends, is there anything we can learn from Moses' approach this morning? How he shared. But there is a second part to this story. And actually, it's just as important. And dare I say it, and I don't want to be rude, This is the thing that most Christians don't think about as much. It's the importance of listening. Moses shared, yes, but look, Moses listened. And actually, there's more detail on this. We pick up the story in verse 13. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. Here is a people group who have left Egypt, some hundreds of thousands of people, whole families, whole tribe, clans and tribes in a kind of tribal society structure. They've been people who've lived under Egyptian rule for many years. Most of them are uneducated. There's whole families and they're in the wilderness. Can you imagine the problems that must have been kicking off? I mean, can you imagine the issues that would have been rising up in these family units and in these tribes 
it would beg a description. And, and so there are inevitably things that come up where they need an adjudicator. He stole my goat. No, I didn't. It ran off of its own accord. Who's going to solve it? And everybody comes to Moses. He's the, it's like a funnel and everyone is pointed on his seat, the seat of the judge. And he's listening carefully to these things. And every time he has to give a wise judgment, a wise statement, applying what he knows about God's law and principles to the lives, the nitty-gritty, granular details of people's struggles and sin and problems. And he's there from morning till noon till night. And one translation says, the people were poised. It's like they're all hanging. When's it my turn? I've got to get this problem resolved. And by the end of it, everyone is absolutely knackered. Exhausted. And notice what happens in verse 14. I just love this. Father-in-law saw what Moses was doing for the people. He said, what is this that you were doing for these people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And then in verse 17, he gets a little bit blunter. Moses, what you are doing is not good. This is father-in-law speaking to son-in-law, Moses. Now, how good are you at taking advice from your in-laws? You know, behind every successful man stands a devoted wife and a shocked mother-in-law. One man said to another, my mother-in-law is an angel. The second replied, you're lucky, mine's still alive. <laughs> and it is true for some that the punishment for bigamy is two mothers-in-law. Now seriously, just think about this, the real drama going on here. Just think about who Moses is. Who are you dealing with? He is a highly educated prince of Egypt. Very few people in the ancient world could write a book like the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is a work of extraordinary literary power and ability. Moses wrote it. He had a Harvard or Cambridge education and a formidable intellect. He is an experienced senior leader. He was 80 when they led the Israelites out of Egypt. He has faced down the most powerful man in the world and won. He has been called by God himself and equipped for a unique task. There never was a prophet like Moses again. Deuteronomy 34 says, There's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. There's nobody like him. Why should someone like that listen to anyone's advice? And it's his father-in-law. You may have noticed that some men can be resistant to taking advice from their wife's dad. Yet he does. Moses listens really carefully. Verse 13 has showed a predicament. The people are around him from morning till night. Why is he in this spot? Because he cares for them. Verse 15, the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between the parties. This is a weighty responsibility and he doesn't shirk it. And Moses is close to exhaustion. He's in over his head. 
things cannot go on for this like this for long. Verse 18 uses a phrase. It says, uh, you will wear yourselves out. In our translation, the Hebrew language behind this it uses a, a word from agriculture. You will wither. You're going to fade like a plant that's dying. And withering is a suitable image in an agricultural society, just as burnout is a suitable image in a technological society or breakdown. He's saying, Moses, you're close to a breakdown. This is serious. Imagine the jeopardy for the whole project if Moses goes under, has a total breakdown at this point, goes into his tent and doesn't come out, the leadership vacuum. Jethro sees the problems crystal clearly, and in, to paraphrase, what he says is, get some help. Can't go on like this. Get some help. And maybe someone here needs to hear someone saying that to them. A number of years ago, I was close to burnout, close to breakdown in a previous church. I didn't realize it. I was like a walking shadow. My wife kept speaking into my life, and I kept going, yeah, 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 yeah. Eventually, she actually arranged an intervention. She got my dad to, to phone up. They encouraged me to speak to a doctor. The doctor said, the thing with men is, men do this. Carry on, carry on, carry on, carry on, carry on, carry on. Collapse! And they didn't see it coming. I was signed off work. I went on antidepressants. I had to take a professional counseling. All things that, to be honest, I thought would never happen to me because I was quite strong, so I thought. Friend, you might be there. Get some help. There's no shame in it. And if someone's saying it to you who loves you, listen. Listen to them. And let's not miss this key point. Jethro isn't even one of the people of God. He's not a Hebrew. He's a pagan. We might put it in our own language, taking advice from a non-Christian. And that's the thing that Christians often miss. We feel that perhaps we should do the talking. After all, we've got this great news to share. But what we learn from Moses is that we should do the listening. And lots of it. And not just listening, but taking advice. Taking advice from somebody else who speaks into our life who we don't think is spiritually qualified. So friends, are you humble enough to do that? To take advice? Let me speak to older people. Are you still willing to listen to the wisdom of others, including those younger? I know you feel like you've seen it all before, and you have seen a lot of it before. It is so easy, isn't it, to get jaded and cynical. Here they go again. And it is true, young people can be idiots. But just remember what you were like when you were 25. When you were 25, remember what you thought about your 18-year-old self. When you were 25, you looked back and thought, gosh, when I was 18, I was a real idiot, you know. I'm so embarrassed to remember some of the things I said. But when you were 40, you looked back on your 25-year-old self and you thought, oh my goodness, when I was 25, you know, I was such an idiot. You know what this means? You're still an idiot. 
Senior friends, our world is changing at a pace that's never been seen before in history. We don't know all things. We've got to be humble enough to listen to wisdom and listen to younger voices. Amen? Younger people, you're not getting off lightly here, by the way. Are you willing to listen to the wisdom of others, including older people? Mark Twain said that when he was 18 years old, he realized that his father was completely ignorant. And that by the age of 25, Mark Twain said, I was grateful to see how much the old man had learned in just seven years. <laughs> see, when we're young, we always think we know best. That's why, by the way, your parents know nothing. When you're 30, you'll realize they actually know a few things. Young person, do you always think you're right? Do you tend to groupthink with others of the same age? Watch out for the herd. You know, herds don't always go in the right direction. Just ask a lemming. <laughs> Do you rely for your wisdom on social media, which is here today and gone in about five minutes? Do you rely on internet reviews to make you think? Do you trust the sacred authority of your own emotions? Just think about that for a moment. Your emotions... How reliable are they, a guide are they to the complexities of life? Why is it really, let's be honest, none of us likes listening to advice, any of us. What is it about us that makes such basic wisdom repellent? I'm afraid the answer is pride. We tend to assume we know best, and Proverbs warns us a fool is wise in his own eyes. We fear losing face. If I take advice from you, I might be diminished. I, I would take advice from you, I look weak. I look less knowledgeable than I would like people to think I am. Well, look, that's just another form of pride, isn't it? I fear that if I take advice from you, I might be weakened. Uh, admitting that you're better than me in some respect, that gives you power over me. I'm going to fear that loss of control. Let's learn from Moses, for goodness sake. Wow, the leader of all Israel sat down and listened to his father-in-law and changed this whole strategy. Numbers 12 verse 3 makes an interesting comment. This comment in the book of Numbers is actually in brackets. It says this, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I do not believe that Moses wrote that sentence. I think it was added by a later editor. Can we have the humility to learn from the most humble man on earth, Moses? He listens to Jethro. He listens to the advice. And it's absolutely stunning. Verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He puts in place a judicial structure. He's still responsible, but he, he hands out and delegates responsibility to trusted leaders. Leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And it saved his ministry and it probably saved his life. He listened. Notice, Moses was the leader chosen by God, yet he listened to wisdom from outside the people of God. And that can be a surprisingly powerful witness to someone who isn't a Christian. Brothers and sisters, we can fall into the error of thinking that we're the ones with all the answers. 
We're really not. We need to listen. Listen to wisdom from outside your culture. People from different cultures, different ethnic backgrounds have such rich perspective to bring. My last church, by the time we left, 50% of our eldership were African. And wow, the blessing that that brought in terms of our perspective. Listening to those from outside our generation, especially older people. Don't be foolish enough to think that just because someone hasn't been to university, that they haven't got a lot to teach you. Life is a great teacher. Listening to those outside your social class. George Bernard Shaw wrote that every time an Englishman opens his mouth, he makes another Englishman despise him. Can you hear the wisdom of a working class person? Working class friend, can you hear the wisdom of a middle class person who sounds a bit posh? Or do you have a chip on your shoulder? Notice from this, not all problems in the life of God's people are solved by Bible study and prayer. There's a huge problem here. Moses doesn't say, we're going to have a prayer meeting about it. We need to do a Bible study and find out what God says about small groups. What they actually need here is a management decision. A wise practice that shares the load. Wisdom may mean letting go of stuff. Moses has to relinquish direct responsibility for the people of God by delegating it out to trusted leaders. And that means he hasn't got his finger in all the pies. It takes him out of direct control. And you know, leaders... I'll speak to any leaders here. You, we, do, we don't really enjoy letting go, do we? Do you secretly think so-and-so won't do it as well as me? I tend to think that. And I'm always right. <laughs> Notice, Moses doesn't just chuck it all in. The advice means he's still responsible, but more wisely. The key is he's now not alone. But leaders... You must choose your delegates extremely carefully because you're sharing significant responsibility. There are requirements here to do with character and competence. Verse 21, select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. They won't take a bribe. They hate bribes. They're honest people of integrity. They're not doing it for personal gain. They want to serve. They believe in the truth. They believe and fear God. These are pious, devout, honest, straight people. And some of them are leaders of thousands. That's a pretty big job. Some are leaders of ten. That's a life group. People have different capacity levels, all given by God. Put the right person in the right position of responsibility. Both character and competence are vital. Friends, where are you facing a pressure point right now that you need wisdom for? Who is the Lord putting in your life who you could listen to and you're currently not hearing from? Think about your personal challenges. Who could you turn to for wisdom? And finally, are you close enough to any non-Christians that you could seek their advice? Just try it. Amen.